Well, at least one good thing uh, that's come from all of this is that this church is finally starting on time. I know that for those of you who have been looking for that for years, your time has now come, and uh, so that's something to think about. I, I've been refraining, you know, I've been tempted all week to work into my notes somehow, knowing that a lot of you this morning are, are in your kitchens and in your living room um, to say, uh, hey, Google, or uh, Alexa or something, but I decided not to, to work that in because I don't want to mess up with any of your mobile orders or anything like that, and so uh, don't worry, uh, you're safe. It's always around this time of year that I write, start to think about being at Crossroads and how much I love this church and the people of this church because I came to Crossroads in April and it was 13 years ago. And I'll never forget, I know I've shared this story before, but my cousin Maggie brought me to church, uh, to this church she'd been going to in a gymnasium up the street. And it was, uh, you know, kind of raw and simple. And, and that's exactly what I needed at that time because I came into that nine o'clock service and I was so impacted by the ministry and the Holy Spirit in that place that I said to her, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to get my own ride home. I think there's another service at 11. I'm going to stay for the 11 o'clock service and then uh, and, and, and just see what happens. And I think that kind of became a little bit of my MO over the years was just come and stay. And I, I got involved and started to have an excuse and a, and a reason to stay at all the services. But um, I just love this church. I love the people and the companions that I have... Uh, May, the friendship that I made over the years of being here and seeing the, all these empty chairs, I'm forced to just sort of imagine all of you sitting here together. And, you know, even I was just thinking about starting off this morning by all of us just closing our eyes and imagining that you are sitting. Well, imagine that you actually got the seat that you wanted to get when you came to church and you weren't forced to scooch in and imagine you're sitting there close your eyes and look around the room and start uh, say some names of the people that you see say some names wherever you are right now of the people that you see that go to this church that also probably see you and are thinking of you right now if you haven't yet even known their name, say the thing that you think. I know uh, there's probably some sort of mnemonic device that you'll use, you know, that one guy who always wears the black sweater vest or that one gal who always wears her hair like that. Say it out and, and pray for them. Thank God for them. Remember them. I'm thinking right now, looking out in my mind and seeing people like Jaron Miss, Jill and Steve. I'm seeing... Uh, Chelsea, my wife, hopefully, I love seeing you here. Uh, seeing, uh, what am I looking at? I'm seeing Justice. I love this church. And it's not an out of sight, out of mind experience right now. And I think that that's a tempting thing for a lot of us to believe that right now being so disjointed and destabilized and decentralized and all the D words that we're out, we're out of each other's minds and we're not. The staff here, we're praying for as 
many of you by name as we possibly can. And, and when we're thinking of you, we're speaking your names out loud. I'm thinking right now of, of some people overseas that I want to just uh, highlight and say, Annie, we're thinking of you. Josh and Elisa Crooks, we're thinking of you. Ben and Carrie, we're thinking of you. Jason and Jamie, Christy. You are not alone. Our hearts and our minds are, are, are going to God in the communion of the saints. We're bring, he brings us together. We're thinking of the medical professionals in this church. If I was to even try to read a list, it'd be two-thirds of this church. It seems like every time I turn around, there's another doctor or a nurse or somebody. And, and I want you to know how thankful we are for your job as a healer and as a medical professional. Jordan Gallagher, Chad, Anna, Annie Tash, Sammy, Gabby, Emily, Taylor, and the list goes on and on. We're, you are not alone in this. We are supporting you. We are praying for you. We are so thankful for you. You are a gift to this city from God and a gift to this church and a gift to this world. And thank you for being where you are. And God has perfect aim and he has you where you are for such a time as this. For those of you who are doing your part by staying home and even if that's hurting you by being laid off right now, you're not alone in this. And let me just say, this is not gonna be a time that's gonna be easy for community to just come to you. We're gonna have to do things like be active on the Facebook page and be active in real time. I mean, if you have a need, your community wants to meet that need. It wants to come around you. So reach out on Real Time Crossroads. Be a presence on the Instagram page. As much as some of us, that's just not what we do. This is where we're at right now. And I um, wanna just sort of say how grateful I am to be a part of this church and how much I love you all and how much I'm praying for you. And I'd like to speak a word of encouragement to you if possible this morning from John chapter three, from the very next uh, few verses that where Rod left us off last week. John chapter three. While you're turning there, uh, I'm gonna be reading from just at the end of where Rod was, chapter three, verse 14, all the way to 17. And normally this is the part where we all stand together. Now, if you wanna stand, I would encourage you to stand, but standing is not a golden calf at this church. It's not a, a, a magic trick. There's nothing that happens there other than what we want to do, which is to honor God in a little small way. It's easy to stand. But if you can't do that where you're at, or, or it, it, think of something that you can do to honor God's word and to, to soften your heart enough with some humility to be able to receive it. If it's raising a hand, if it's putting your phone down, if it's uh, quieting the room, if it's closing your eyes, if it's reading out loud, then please join me uh, for the reading of God's word at this time. John chapter three and verse 14. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. Here we are at Palm Sunday, the beginning of a week of remembrance, where we remember the most important events that our faith, uh, of our faith. It's not an easy week to uh, just sort of, uh, with no effort at all, you're going to get it. I mean, our world doesn't really help us on this week. I don't know if you've noticed this, but around Good Friday, it gets quiet. I, the, the world just doesn't really seem to look that way. It's almost like an intentional shift away from that action, that moment of, of Jesus on the cross. I know for me, I thought that Palm Sunday was the like best day of Jesus' ministry growing up. I mean, we used to uh, reenact this. I don't remember if it was, we would do plays at our uh, church growing up and we'd all get into it and you'd dress up and you got palm branches that you're waving around and you're singing the song and they'd always have somebody dressed up like Jesus walking around. I never got to do that. I always wanted to do that, but you know, I, I guess I didn't look enough like Jesus. I would, they'd get, let me be the guard, the Roman guard, you know, with the whip or whatever. They thought that was a good fit for me. Whatever. That's fine. No bad blood. Uh, but I always just thought, this is the good day. Palm Sunday is the good day. People are singing, Hosanna, Hoshiana, save us, Lord. This is, uh, this is the time where they actually see him for who he is. I mean, people look like they're getting saved this day. I mean, uh, this is the good day of Jesus' ministry. And it wasn't until recent years that I started to realize that they actually missed it. When you actually see Jesus in 19, uh, Luke 19, his response at the triumphal entry is not happy that people are cheering him on. Because he sees something that I never saw, which is the motivation behind what they were doing. I never saw the tears in Jesus' eyes before when he was crying and weeping and saying, if only you had known what actually would make for peace. And then notice what he says. You will be surrounded by an army and it's good. you're not going to win this battle. What he sees is a group of people holding not just an innocent palm branch in the air uh, because that's just what happened to be nearby. They're holding up a sign of the zealot they want to start an insurrection, a war. They want to start a rebellion against Rome. And their hope is that the Passover time is going to precipitate the time of the new Passover where now we have a new Pharaoh and a new Egypt and we need a new seed across. And God's going to do that for us if we force him into it through this act of violence and war. And Jesus said, you're missing it. You're missing the thing that actually makes for peace. We can miss it. The thing that actually brought peace, Ephesians 2, 14 says, Jesus is our peace, and he broke down the wall of hostility through the bloodshed of the cross. Jesus brought peace through the cross. Rod had it in his heart this week that we would be asking ourselves the question, what does the cross mean to you? Because we do not want to miss it. There's going to be videos posted on our Facebook and Instagram each day this week where people say for, in their own words from our church what the cross means. 
uh, to them. I would encourage you to tune into that so we can continue to fix our eyes on Jesus this week and, and remember what he actually did and not fall into the trap of thinking that we have uh, our own way like, like they did in Jerusalem that day. They wanted to force Jesus to do it the way they wanted him to do it. But Jesus had something else in mind even then. Which leads me to uh, John chapter 3. Rod laid out the story last week of Nicodemus and Jesus and their interaction. I love that story, even especially in a time like this, because of, of what Jesus said. He, Jesus wants to deal with things that are really overwhelming to us. Jesus wants to deal with things that we can't even see. That's the first thing that Nicodemus says to Jesus. We see that you are a man who came from God because of the things that you're doing. And did you notice Jesus' response to Nicodemus? What does he say? You can't see the kingdom unless you've been born again. You can't see. You think you can see. You think that I am here to do things to, to, that you can see so you can connect, so the, connect the dots that way. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm doing things that you can't see. I'm dealing with things you can't see. My priority is beyond the things that you can see. Think of me uh, like the wind. Think of it like uh, the uh, uh, in, invisible bond between someone who was born into a family. Think about it. You know, and Jesus meets Nicodemus halfway there in verse 14. And he thinks of the one story in the Old Testament that shows uh, people looking in faith to something to solve a problem that's invisible. All of the people who were bitten by a venomous uh, snake had something inside of them that was coursing through their veins that was deadly to them that you can't see. But what the solution that God uh, brought to them was, was that Moses would lift up a bronze serpent and anybody who believed that God would heal them, all they had to do was act out in faith and look up and look to that serpent and they would, their invisible problem that was overwhelming them, that they could not see, would be healed. And Jesus says that to Nicodemus, the son of man has to be lifted up just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so that who would ever believe, who would ever look to him in faith, who would ever cast their eyes on him and believe that it would solve that problem of the unseen venom and toxic uh, sin inside of their soul, they would have eternal life. There is a pause in the writing here, between 14, 15 and 16. I'd like to just comment on that, if you would. I've always thought that Jesus continued to say John 3.16 and 3.17. I, I always just assumed Jesus continued talking, but the, the scholars, the modern scholars of our day say that John actually is the one writing 316, 17 to 21. I mean, he, he actually um, pauses to clarify. And one of the reasons why they, um, they point to this is even that word for that he uses in, in 16 and 17 is a word that's it's a pause to clarify, to connect to what he just said. Now, he didn't know he was writing John 316 when he wrote this. But I'm so glad that he did. 
And I don't know, just as a side note, I don't know if, if you've noticed this or not, but it seems like John 3.16 has gone from such an immensely precious place for so many of us into some weird attack. It's under attack. On the one hand, John 3.16, if you bring it up, in some highly religious circles, kind of might get an eye roll. People might say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like a WWJD brace. A big, okay, yeah, that's such, such a, a dated thing. Or it's not even interesting enough to put on Pinterest. Or I'm not going to use that verse in, in any of my creative stuff. It's, it's not speaking to me anymore. It's kind of dead. On the other hand, I have seen in some more progressive theology or even uh, some progressive critiques of Christianity that this very verse is the verse that portrays some sort of barbaric, uh, bloodthirsty God that hated the world so much that he had to kill his son. And basically, this is the proof of this being a cult of human sacrifice. Those are not my words. John 3.16 seems to be under attack here. Ironically, this was meant to be a point of clarity. And if we're not careful, I mean, just imagine what our theology would look like without John pausing to say things like this. I mean, we could just be left with, yeah, you have to look up to the, to, to the one on the cross if you want to be healed. But why did he even do it? Does, does he even love me? There's all kinds of ways that you can look at the one on the cross. And John wants to uh, get ahead of that conversation. He's kind of reminding me, because he does this all the time, breaking from the dialogue and then putting in a monologue here of his thoughts. He, he puts parentheses around and he tries to clarify certain things because John's not messing around with his writing. He is writing this stuff to people who desperately need to know the truth about who God is and how he sees us. So like a good friend, when you're watching a, a movie and, and they kind of know what's going on, but you missed it and, and they pause it and they pause it to just say to you, did you hear what they just said? Just don't miss this point. I, I really want to clarify so that you understand what's going on here. Why did the Son of Man <coughs> go to the cross? It is because of the love of God for this world. Because he loves you is why he did this. That's it. He loves you. The, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit acting out in harmony, harmony for their passion for you because they love you. That's why John 3.16, that's what John 3.16 clarifies for us. is the motivation behind why he did this. Thank you for pointing us to that, Dave Vandervelde, with your... Uh, with your call to worship just over a month ago, it was, it was for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 1, that he did this because he was so in love with us. He wants to show us his love through this great act of self-sacrifice. Thank you, John, for that clarification. Nobody talks about the love of God more than John. He really wants us to know it in his letter and his, in his epistles. God is love, he says. 
How can we know God if we have hatred in our heart for our brother, but, but that we love our brother? Greater love is no man than this, than to, to lay down your life for one another. He is constantly pointing us to the motivation of love behind the, uh, uh, the, act of, the great act of self-sacrifice that we first see in Christ and that we now see in one another. Do not take John 3.16 from me. I need to know that there is love in the eyes of God and it was because of his love that he died for me. I'd like to make a comment on um, a word in, 14, in 15 and in 16 uh, for a few moments. I... I've been just sort of swimming around in the language here, just really trying to um, understand some things with kind of a nuanced way or, or, or find some fresh perspective on some of this. And I don't know about you, but when I read the words eternal life, I get a red flag in my own Bible study. Not a lot of you know this, but when I study the Bible and I look at a word and I have an internal dialogue and I say, do I just assume I know what that means? And if that's true, that's where I start to dig in the most because I know that my assumptions come from all kinds of different weird places and I don't want it to. I want it to come from the Bible. I want to know what does John mean by eternal life? When I think of it, I think of the, 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 the heaven that is sort of rooted in the tradition of Plato. Uh, that's rooted in sort of the Gnostic world, uh, the, the heaven. This is like the way we get to the heaven place with pink clouds and harps and golf for eternity and, and this kind of thing. Of course, it does imply uh, all of that, uh, not all the imagery. It does, it does imply eternity. But what is John using this word to mean? Uh, and I found some kind of interesting perspectives here. You may remember in chapter one, Rod introduces to that word life. In chapter one, we read, in him was life. And that life was the light of man. John uses that word life. Not just the, the word for life as in you're just a living person. But this special life that comes from God. And eternity or eternal or everlasting or he uses this over 50 times in his writings. Now what I found particularly interesting about this is it's not necessarily just pointing us towards uh, this like a synonym for heaven. But John actually defines it explicitly in chapter 17 verse 3. Jesus is praying a very famous, beautiful prayer. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, he says, Eternal life, okay, that, that same phrase, is this. To know you, the one true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Does your perspective on what the word eternal life mean at least start where John defines it? A relationship, a knowing relationship between who God is and who we are, that, that relationship that when you're in it, apparently is a life-giving relationship. If we start there, then we can start to track down a little bit of what John's doing here because uh, starting, in, cult culturally speaking, starting in Daniel chapter 12, uh, there was a reference to uh, this same kind of terminology where they translate it, the age to come. 
The age to come becomes now um, a, a way that we can view their worldview. You might hear Jesus say things like uh, marriage, it, it, neither will be given in marriage or will be married in the age to come. Sometimes he says things like, uh, for those of you who give up your, your father and your mother and brother and sister in this age, you will then be rewarded a hundredfold in the age to come. There were two ages in their worldview. One is this current evil age. That's how sometimes the Apostle Paul calls it, the, the current age, and the age of the Messiah, the age to come. When we say the age to come, that's, that's kind of like this, the, the time where Jesus is going to return to this place and he's going to rule and reign. And everything that he gives us a glimpse of now is going to be the norm then. And it's going to put all the wrong things right in the world. This is the age to come. Some translators go so far as to translate the term eternal life to the life of the age to come. They work with that word eternal there to say the, the life of the age to come. It's coming into this world now. And that shift is different. It's not just thinking, oh, if I believe this and trust this, then I am going to uh, live for many, many years. What John actually means by this is, yes, that's true. But in your many, many years, you will actually have life. Reason why I start thinking about this uh, present ability to receive the life that Jesus promises is even in John chapter three itself. Look at chap chapter three, verse 36. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. There's a present tense uh, version of this several, many times throughout John. You can have this. John is talking to people who are living in a culture where by believing in Jesus, you could go to the Colosseum. You could be crucified. If you're doing something uh, religiously upsetting, to you are viewed as a threat. They need to know. There is something that's happening with my faith and trust in Jesus that, that interacts with me even now. Doesn't this make sense as to why so many people went to the Colosseum, were tortured, were bruised and, uh, uh, and crucified for their faith in Christ and did so with joy in, in their heart and did so with some sort of life that couldn't be taken from them? I want that eternal life. Ask John about it. He got put in prison for this. Apostle Paul was beheaded for this. St. Peter was not even, was so it, uh, honored, uh, was, so, was, was reflecting the honor of what Jesus did on the cross. The meaning of John 3.16 meant so much to him that he wouldn't even allow himself to be crucified right side up like Jesus was. He asked to be put upside down for he was not even worthy. What does the cross mean to you? Do you have the life that is promised to you by putting your faith and trust in Jesus? When's the last time you doubled down on Jesus? 
You cannot be a prideful person and do this, but you have in humility, fall before Jesus and say, here are all the things that are unseen and overwhelming me in my life. Here are all my anxieties, worries, and concerns. And you will receive the promised life the life, the eternal life, the, the, uh, the glimpse of the age to come will be present in your heart and in your soul. You know what this life is like? It's a life that smashes idols. It's, it's an idol-smashing life. It's a faith-strengthening uh, type of life. It's a, it's a life that restores your relationships. It's a life that um, gives you a peace that surpasses understanding and guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's a life that will lift you up. And as we're going to see throughout this week, it's a life that leads to not death, but conquering death, a life that leads to resurrection. It is a life that will um, be like what Jesus says in, in, in the woman at the well. It's a life that's like when you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. That kind of eternal life. Like the bread that we, uh, th not like the bread that perishes, but the bread that leads to eternal life. He even says, for those of you who are worried in John chapter 10, I have you in my hand. No one will take you from my hand because I have given you eternal life. Do you know this life? Our world is desperate for this life and they need to see that in you as you go out into this world carrying a glimpse of the age to come in how you interact and in, 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 in the peace that you have. For whoever believes in, in him will not perish but have eternal life. Of course, this is everything in the age to come that we believe about eternal life and, and heaven, and that, that you, you will have that. But I want to stand here today and tell you, you can have the life of the age to come even now if you put your trust in Jesus. What do you need to trust him with? What are you worried about and, and, and what do you need to lay at his feet? There's a lot of things in this world that want to get your attention and want to promise you health and security and safety and comfort and pleasure. They want to, to give you power. And those things can be binding to us. They can keep us in their grip. It's really the definition of idolatry. The last thing I'd like to uh, put before you today is a really practical implication of the cross as we start this week of looking at the cross. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but so that the world through him would be saved. He did not send his son in the world to condemn. Ask anybody in the, who's right in the New Testament. They believe that something actually happened on the cross. Something practical and powerful happened. And one of the things that happened is continually articulated as a removal of the condemnation. Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 4, uh, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, gave himself for our sin and rescued us from this evil present age. He, he, in his giving himself for us, rescued us from the grip of the present age and the sin. Uh, in Colossians 2, 13 or 14, what does he say? He has forgiven all of our sin. 
He has canceled the, the record of debt that stood against us and taken away the condemnation by nailing it to the cross. The cross has a power in it that sets us free from all of our sin and our condemnation. In a word, forgiveness. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering throughout the week, like, can the gospel bear fruit in a bunch of people who are in a shelter in place or who are quarantined? Can, can the gospel bear fruit in your household? in your neighborhood. Let me tell you one way that it can. Through the way we forgive one another. There are a lot of Christians and people who are not Christian walking around this world carrying on their back a weight that does not belong there. A weight of condemnation telling them that you are uh, bad and wrong and you are unlovable and you are unworthy and you are imperfect and you have done this wrong. Because of your history, I have a record of debt that proves it and you know it. That burden is so heavy. And we have little opportunities even now while we're uh, you know, in this quarantine type state to look at our family, look at our spouse, Look at our uh, children. Look at our neighbor. Look at the people that you see online who may or may not be uh, annoying you or whatever and say, you are forgiven. There is forgiveness for you. I forgive you. We have an opportunity even now to dig deep in our own hearts and look in the mirror and say, there is forgiveness for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, he took care of that on the cross. So now at this time in the service, I'd just like to uh, close by encouraging you to think of some people in your life that need your forgiveness, that need to know that Jesus provided that forgiveness. If there's anybody even in this church who, uh, you know, when you closed your eyes and you looked across the room in your imagination, you saw somebody that you need to forgive, forgive. Confirm the work that is done on the cross. If there's anybody uh, here uh, right now who are thinking there's people in my life that I could simply pray for, reach out to, and just, or not even make it about me, just to believe in the forgiveness and confirm that forgiveness of the gospel, uh, then Holy Spirit, convict us. Give us the courage and the ability to go confirm the forgiveness provided for us and the removal of condemnation. And at this time, we are going to now remember the body of Christ as we, one body, continue to take communion together and remember the work that he did to provide us with that forgiveness. So if you're not ready for that, uh, get ready. And we have a video to sort of lead you through that. Amen.